How is large cap sponsor Advent International approaching investments in the consumer sector? And what makes a good investment versus just a good consumer business? And what does merger market data and intelligence tell us about how future private equity activity in the sector is shaping up? We'll be discussing all this and more with a guest interview from Advent International Managing Director Nicolas Chavan on today's episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. Hello, listener, and welcome to today's episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. My name's Harriet Matthews. I'm Funds Editor at Merger Market, and I'll be your host for today. It's been a while since we've done a deep dive into a sector on the podcast. And today, I'm pleased to say that we're going to be talking about the consumer sector. While there can be a bit of doom and gloom about consumer businesses and PE investment in them in the current macro environment, private equity is continuing to pursue attractive investments in niche opportunities where it finds them. Later in the episode, I'll be discussing the sector with Nicolas Chavin from Advent International, following the firm's investment in luxury fashion brand Zimmerman, which was announced in August. But before that, to set the scene and to catch you all up on data and recent activity in the sector, I'm pleased to say I'm joined by my colleague, Eero Patsakulaki, private equity and consumer reporter for Merger Market. Eero, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Harriet. Thanks very much for having me. Well, thank you for for joining me today. So, Eero, how are we doing in terms of private equity activity in the consumer space in the year to date? Can you give a bit of an overview of the figures so far? Yes, uh, sure. So actually, the consumer sector has not been as bad when we compare with the European overall sponsor activity. Um, so in terms of deal volume uh, so far this year, when we compare it to the same period in 2022, um, sponsor activity is down 62% and uh, seven, se- 17% down in terms of deal count. Um, so when we compare that with the European overall sponsor activity, uh, which was down 68% in terms of volume and 22 in terms of deal count, uh, we can see that things are quite similar, not, not that bad for the consumer sectors. When we look at uh, sponsor exits, we can see that they're quite stable um, year to date. And also when we com- look back to 2021, not significant changes. It might be interesting to mention that the large cap space uh, seems to be significantly hit. Um, we haven't seen actually any deal above 1 billion. However, the mid cap space, um, in terms of deal volume, it has doubled uh, year to date. And in terms of deal count, it's been down um, by 10% in the same period last year. So yes, I think this is the the overview and everybody I think is expecting an uptick in the first half of next year, um, whereas people were hopeful that maybe we would see um, an uptick in uh, deal activity in this quarter. Uh, that doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, I mean, of course, we've got, you know, a little bit of this year left to go. But it's interesting that actually the status of European consumer activity isn't too far out of line with what we're seeing overall for M&A in spite of some of the kind of uh, doom and gloom around it. So that's a, that's a positive note to start on, I think. No, yes, for sure. Um, because I think people tend to have a very negative outlook for, for the sector, but it might not be that bad. Absolutely. 
And in terms of what the drivers for private equity activity are in the sector, you know, some firms have obviously moved a bit away from consumer in the current market, but clearly some are are still reasonably active. They're looking at opportunities. So what what are they looking for in terms of business models, in terms of the consumer drivers they're, they're looking at? I think this is something that Nicola uh, touched on uh, during the interview, that uh, basically tech and sustainability are key themes that um, con- that consumer companies care for. And for example, when uh, sponsors do their due diligence, they pay a lot of attention on sustainability because um, there's been a lot of research suggesting that uh, despite uh, the hit of the consumer's uh, discretionary spending, they still are willing to pay more for companies that have green products or that they pay a lot of attention in sustainability. So this is something understood broadly by the industry. And of course, um, technology and now when we have this emergence of AI, it's something that uh, businesses in the consumer sector care a lot about. Um, They want to improve a lot their uh, direct-to-consumer offering or uh, omni-channel models through technology. For example, retailers are increasingly using technology to optimize and broaden the customer's experience. So these are things actually really important that these uh, businesses care about. Um, then that translates in the segments within consumer that actually um, seem they seem to have uh, to be in demand, and we see a lot of appetite for travel. Um, also, something that we've seen maybe for a year now, it continues to have good appetite is uh, food ingredients when it comes to the broader food and beverage umbrella. This is a segment that is quite strong. We can talk later about some uh, some sale processes that are underway there. So yes, overall, the leisure segment um, is is reviving after the pandemic. So I would say these are some of the key drivers and uh, segments, pockets of activity. Absolutely. And on that note, can you tell me a bit about how how these these themes, these drivers are playing out in in recent deal activity and also in any processes that um, you know you and our, our you know fellow reporters are are tracking at merchant market in the consumer space? Yes, for sure. Um, basically, this month um, we saw a, a, the restaurant group, which uh, was a take take private by Apollo. Um, another interesting company was the Italian safety footwear company U Power, which was acquired, I think, in spring from NB uh, Renaissance. Also, Next, which is a trade buyer, but they, they bought uh, two retailers, Reese and Fatface. Fatface, I think, was completed this month as well. So we've seen some activity there. Uh, of course, there are some, uh, when we look ahead, we can talk a little bit later about uh, some other interesting dual processes, or we had the, recently some IPOs in the sector. And when it comes to um, companies that are underway, uh, we have reported on Merger Market about uh, the Norwegian baby products company, which is called Stokke, and um, they seem to be prepping uh, to come to the market. Um, another food ingredients uh, business is another Italian. Uh, it's called Optima. 
and they they are a manufacturer of ice cream ingredients. And we've read on the press they attract a lot of interest, and we've actually reported on it. Uh, same for Forno Dazzolo, another Italian um, bakery company, which is in the market. And uh, one successful case was Butternut Box, um, which is again we see how the the pet segment is still uh, n- not as uh, vibrant as it was, uh, maybe post pandemic, but still that was a successful um, deal. Um, I think there are some more, of course, in the ingredients, but I think these are interesting. And then also interesting to see uh, two carve outs that we've been reporting on. One is uh, the human nutrition unit of Volak. And also the carve-out of Princess Food from uh, Mitsubishi. These are two carve-outs that we've reported on. So I would say these are interesting. And of course, many names that we keep hearing when it comes to tour operators and travel businesses and hotels. Very interesting. And at the same time, um, I suppose some there are some other processes that don't seem to have fared as well. We've said that, uh, we've reported recently that Alphabet Ventures has hit the pause button. Great, great pun there um, <laughs> on, on its sale process. That's a German pet food brand platform. So, you know, as you say, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of appetite out there for different kinds of businesses, but um, you know the the sort of pause there was put down to you know potential performance issues, um, you know, and potentially um, you know the auction could well resume in the coming months um, with trading expected to improve. So not all plain sailing, but some really interesting opportunities there. So thank you for sharing those, Zero. Let's listen now to our interview with Nicolas Chaven from Advent International. Nicolas was appointed to lead Advent's European retail, consumer and leisure team uh, in 2020. He joined from Towerbrook. We'll listen to that interview with him now. And after that, Ira and I will be back with you to discuss a few key takeaways. Nicola, welcome to the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. Thanks very much for taking the time to speak to me today. Good morning, Harriet. Very pleased to meet you and to discuss the state of consumer in Europe and the rest of the world. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Um, no, looking looking forward to, to asking you all, all the questions I have for you today. Um, and I want to bring our listeners kind of up to speed on Advent's uh, recent activity in this sector, actually, in case they're maybe not not familiar with um, your recent deals. Just a quick recap. Um, in August this year, um, Advent announced its acquisition, of course, of Australia headquartered luxury fashion brand Zimmerman uh, from its founding family, I believe, and Style Capital in a deal that was reported reportedly valued um, at around 1 billion US dollars. Then in Europe, um, recent activity from Advent includes the acquisition of a majority stake in French perfume brands, uh, Parfum de Marly and uh, Initio Parfum Privé, which was announced in June, I believe. So good. Against that kind of uh, backdrop of recent activity, you know, You've obviously managed to get deals done in this space, but there can be a bit of doom and gloom we, we've found around investing in the consumer space at the moment, given, you know, obviously inflation and general macro uncertainty. So I wanted to ask you, Nicola, what gives you conviction around your strategy in this area? Does the luxury element of your recent deals kind of shield your 
part of the market a little bit from some of the more general pressures on consumer? No, listen, it's, as you know, um, we've been through turbulent times in consumer since 2019 for many different reasons. Um, first one, he, we had um, the emergence of COVID. Then um, you had um, inflation in conjunction with a war uh, at the footsteps of Europe with Ukraine. So there were many changes, and it's quite important to disentangle the different effects. So now you ask me a question about conviction about our strategy. I think, you know, it's all about execution. Um, Advent is specialized by industry vertical. The simple reason for that is that we are we have the conviction that deep industry knowledge sets us apart. And then we come back to that. So we have a strategy. The strategy is to invest well, and it's all about triaging. We see a lot of opportunities every year. You've got bankers visiting us, telling us you should invest in X, Y, and Z. In reality, the skills of investment professional is to look at the sets of companies available for sale and decide where do we want to invest and why. And you, have, you need to use a bit your left brain and your right brain. The left brain, the analytical skills, the linear thinking, but the right brain is equally important. That will be about deal shaping, about creative thinking, and sometimes what people call the killer's instinct. So the strategy is really to make a distinction between good companies and good investments, and to think about themes. It could be, do we want to invest in value retail, or do we want to invest in luxury? Uh, we might want to invest in both for different reasons. It can be a theme. Do we want to invest in health and wellness because we believe that the consumer will pay more attention to these topics? Or it could be a subsector. Now, the strategy, you know, it's not related to a person, myself. It's really a function of the team. So we have the retail consumer leisure team in Europe large number of investment professionals based in London in our local offices. And we compare notes with our colleagues because it's a global market. If you think in luxury, you have three major geographies. If you look how the money is spent in luxury, you've got typically China, that is an important engine, the US and Europe. Um, so we need to compare notes with our colleagues and we discuss with our set of industry advisors because they've got a lot of experience. So the conviction about the strategy is we look at many things and you need to be a bit of a truffle pig as well. You know, we're looking for something rare, difficult to locate, and we want to create value. So, and it's a partnership typically with a management team or with founders. For Zimmerman and Parfum de Marly, in each instance, it was a partnership. On Parfum de Marly with a founder, um, who remain, who keeps an important stake into the business. Um, and on Zimmerman, you know, it was a partnership with Style Capital, who remains a minority investors, and the founders, so Nikki and Simon Zimmerman, and Chris Oliver, the CEO. So if you want to be relevant to them, you need to bring something that they do not have necessarily on their own, 
or that you could do potentially better than our competitors. So that's important about the strategy. The second element of your question was, do I believe that luxury is more insulated against specific trends that we see today? Um, it's a complex question because luxury is a very generic term. So I would really want to spend time on what we mean by luxury and come back. You need to add a lens related to the consumer demographics. You know, when you buy a brand, who is buying the brand? Uh, and it's a lot about the socioeconomic cohorts. Um, is it a discretionary spend for them? Is it not? Why? And you need to deaverage the market. I'm a strong believer at not looking at averages because they are misleading. So, you know, there are two books that are fundamental for anybody who wants to do private equity. One is The Granularity of Growth. And the other one is a book from 1949 that weathered the test of time really well is The Intelligent Investor. And their working hypothesis is that don't look at averages. You need to decompose the market where you want to invest. And I think it's important. So luxury, most of the time, people think about high price point. I would say it's high price point, very specific distribution channels, a sentiment of exclusivity. And typically, you want to sell at full retail price because you do not associate luxury with discounts or markdowns. Um, so that would say, now, luxury sometimes is a bit damaged because people think about the pyramid, about affordable luxury or prestige, prestige and exclusivity. Um, in reality, luxury, if you want to know if it's insulated against a recession, you need to look at who are the buyers and you need to look at the segmentation of your buyers. Luxury, yes, you have a small group of extremely wealthy individuals who are totally insulated, but they will not make the bulk of your revenues generally. And you have a lot of intermittent luxury spenders that will compose the majority of your revenues. And this can be in and out of your brand. So you need to understand their loyalty, the switching cost, and potentially the alternatives that they have. And that's where we spend time to understand why the buyers of the brands are they impacted by the recession? You know, it's, it's interesting. There's a lot of psychology in a recession about discretionary spending. So if you look, there's always a time lag because there's a lot of optimism generally. People don't want to hear bad news. So you need to see that there is a time lag and it could be 12 months, 18 months before the consumers reduce their spending. And as well, depending on your consumer demographics, you know, you have the bottom of the pyramid in terms of lower income, they will adapt immediately. Then you have the middle um, of your consumer demographics. They are typically impacted by real estate, property prices. And psychologically, if prices go down, they will say we're in a difficult time. And then you have the wealthy individuals that are more impacted by the stock markets. So you need to understand who is buying from the brand. Um, so I would say people 
bankers love to say, oh, it's luxury. It's going to, you know, there's resilience. You need to look at leveraging the market because it's much more complicated than just one clear picture. Yeah, really fascinating to hear about some of the the nuances there and to get some reading material for for me and my listeners as as well. Um, Now, taking a a step back now, maybe, um, Nicola, you've talked about kind of how you identify, you know, different forms of of revenue and and consumer drivers a little bit, that kind of thing. But what does it actually take to originate deals in the sort of areas you look at within consumer? Obviously, the best businesses are going to be kind of in in short supply. Um, You mentioned, obviously, you know, bankers will will come to you, kind of suggest, um, you know, ways to originate deals or situations. But how do you kind of, how do you originate and how do you get an edge in competitive situations, you know, around offering more than than capital, that kind of thing? Can you explain that a bit? So, the way it works is that we do not decide, you know, like we, we, we try to be, because we are organized by industry vertical, we spend a lot of time on our purse, companies that we have identified much ahead of a potential sale. So Zimmerman is a good example. Um, Zimmerman, um, family-owned, General Atlantic, acquired a minority stake, then style capital. We didn't discover Zimmerman in 2022. We've been following them for a long time. And, you know, so we try to look at sub-segments. And as a team, we say, well, this company might be for sale in four years' time. There is something interesting about it. You know, sometimes it starts a bit, you need to be inquisitive. We hear, we run consumer surveys, we are our own, um, you know, lab teams using artificial intelligence data. And we think this company, there's a lot of noise about it. So we try to understand exactly what is so special about it. What is the secret sauce? On Zimmerman, what I really liked about it is that if you do a blind testing in a room, let's say you have 10 women wearing different dresses, most of the time you will recognize very easily somebody wearing a Zimmerman dress because you have a highly differentiated aesthetics. There's an distinctive style and that's something we really liked about the brand. Um, There's something special about it. There's an interesting price point and we believe that there's still a lot of runway. So we we try to understand the white space, the growth opportunities. And um, so, and we think about investing into a brand, not because it's exciting for the next four years, but we think about a decade. Why am I saying that? You know, we have buyers and at some point, the way we make money is we need to sell. And we want to make sure that the next owner will be able to underwrite strong growth case. If we believe that the company is going to reach maturity under our ownership, that's something that will potentially concern us and we need to factor in uh, a multiple uh, contraction. So we think about, we believe that there is runway for the next 10 years for this brand. And because we're not buying for a short-term gain, it needs to make sense for the next two or three ownership going forward. Um, So now how do we try to find those pearls? You know, it's a teamwork. Um, We try to find, situations where at the end of the day, 
it can be a competitive situation. So it's a crowded market probability. So you need to be relevant to the sellers. They need to think that we're going to add more value than our, than our competitors. So it's a function of what we have in our portfolio companies is do we have, do we understand the pattern recognition? Can we accelerate? Can we be their acceleration partners? So it can be new geographies. It could be to support the team in their existing geographies, going into new product categories. So for Parfum de Marly, it was very interesting. If you think about that, um, travel retail is important for them. We are a minority investor in the free, the listed company that is the you know, world leader in, in travel retail, that was of interest to them. We had a lot of experience in beauty. We invested in Douglas. We invested in Olaplex, Oveon in the US. We know the beauty market really well. And we knew that we were buying something special in niche fragrances that was different. We were excited by the category. Um, so when they were speaking to us, they didn't have to educate us in terms of distribution. The marketing is very different in niche fragrances than in prestige fragrances because it's uh, much more targeted. Um, so when we met Julien Sprecher, the founder, and Julien Sausset, the first meeting, um, you know, typically it's a smell test of each other, by the way. It's like when you test drive, you like the car, you enjoy it, and you think that you can value to the to the to the management team. You know, at the end of the day, we spend five to six years together. It needs to be professional, but as well, it can be fun. So it's about people as well. So you need to be relevant to the people you want to team up with. Um, you need to make sure that you're going to develop something differentiated. What I mean by that is that if you think about that, we use the same consultants for the due diligence as our competitors. Uh, we'll do the financial due diligence, the market due diligence. We have relatively access to equal information. So our ability to win a deal, one is our own conviction. Are we able and willing to link in? You know, when I have my own discussion to investment committee, they know that I'm looking at different projects and they will ask me, but Nicolas, tell me, why do you want to invest in this company in Parfum de Marly? Because you have two other opportunities. Explain to us, why are you excited? And so they want to test me and I need to have high conviction um, because at the end of the day, we're short in time, we have capital, but it's really about asset selection. And the second item is that we need to be able to have a differentiated value creation plan, something that can be different to the management business plan, where we believe that we can do more in specific channels, in specific geographies, and this potentially will be enabled by the existing portfolio companies of Advent. So for Parfum de Marly, there was an interesting story about door penetration in the US with department stores and its um, channels that we know extremely well because we have a lot of overlap with our portfolio companies. So we know uh, Neiman Marcus, Nordstrom, Sachs, all the names. We know the management teams. We know how to run a, uh, 
the fragrance flow in the department store in the US, how competitive it is. Um, we knew how to accelerate the development with management team in specific geographies that they are excited about, like China. And we could um, you know, accelerate their development as well in travel retail. Um, and we were speaking a bit the same voice when, because we, you know, we were working with Isabelle Paris, the former CEO of Douglas. She's an operating partner within Advent. Julian Diaz, the former CEO of uh, of um, of uh, of Defree. So you know, it, it takes two to tango, and where you have an alignment between Advent and the management team, that's typically you have a high chance to win the deal. Yeah, it's fascinating to hear from you about the kind of interplay of all those different factors in origination. Um, it goes beyond just identifying a business, but the the deep dive you obviously go into. And you mentioned, Nicolas, the um, the fact that you will look for a business with a long kind of runway of growth and value creation. Obviously, private equity firms need to eventually sell their, their assets. That typically is, is how the model works. Um, so in the current market, I wanted to ask a bit about you know, where you or how you see the kind of universe of buyers for these types of companies, not specifically your most recent investments, obviously, you're kind of just getting just getting started there. But, you know, for example, the IPO window is is opening at the time of our recording. There's a lot of chatter around Birkenstock, that kind of thing. How do you see the kind of universe of, of buyers in this area at the moment? Relatively easy to buy, but we measure success by the exit. <laughs> um, and we will get excited when we have what I would call a multi-threaded exit optionality. So you don't want to be stuck in a one way out. So, um, so when we believe that you have multiple types of buyers for the next exit, it could be private equity buyers, it could be family offices, it could be strategic buyers and an IPO in addition to that's you're in a good spot. If you believe that your only exit is an IPO, I'm cautious. The reason for that is that you're dependent on the market window that you do not control and you don't have an alternative. So if the IPO window is shut, you will stuck, be stuck with your asset. And an IPO is not necessarily an exit. People forget about that. You know, there will be an element of selling shares, but most of the time you will raise capital. Um, you go to the market, there is an element, a period of standstill where you cannot sell your shares. And you're subject to volatility as well and market perception. Um, so that's the challenge with IPO. So at Advent, we really focus on buying highly desirable assets, desirable for strategic buyers. So we spend a lot of time to understand who potentially could be strategic buyers. Why would they be interested? And how can we make our investments more desirable for strategic assets. You don't control the future. So there's an element of um, you know, range of outcomes. 
But I would say where we spend a lot of time is whenever we make an investment is to think, are we buying really something strategic <laughs> or are we buying a good business? Um, so that's why I think we are not interested in doing a, to be in the market regularly. We would rather pass on opportunities if we believe that it's a good company, but not necessarily a good exit. Um, and it's something we're extremely disciplined about to have a conversation when you buy an asset multiple times with investment committee members about, but why would, why would somebody really fight to buy this asset from us? Um, and it's not just, oh, because it has a nice margin, you know, oh, because it's large. It has to be more than that. What type of strategic imperative is it going to fill for X, Y, and Z? Now, it's difficult to predict about the corporate agenda of a strategic buyers. In five years down the line, they could be busy. They could have a management change. But at the end of the day, we're investors. And we incentivize to buy assets and to improve them uh, and significantly. So that's why we spend a lot of time on value creation plan. And we do that in a very consistent way. And, you know, we have the conviction that the first two years are really important <laughs> in the value creation. You don't want to delay anything because it will set the tone. And um, what we want to have is optionality. and. Um, and it's something where the deal team spends a lot of time uh, to be better businesses for potentially strategic buyers. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as as part of that, obviously, value creation is is a huge topic. It's a huge topic in the private equity industry generally at the moment, given the rising cost of, of capital. You'll be aware of this, as, as will our listeners. So I wanted to ask about consumer drivers. You know, we hear a lot about conscious consumers, sustainability as, as drivers. Um, and I was interested to hear earlier that you mentioned um, the, the kind of pyramid of where revenues for luxury businesses come from. It's not just about, you know, those at the top and, and the drivers there. So I wondered if you could expand a bit on how, how you make use of, of drivers like that to create value. When we think about uh, value creation, you have different elements. We discussed only some of them. What There are two elements I would like to discuss. One is tech is important uh, because I, we don't see it as a, industry vertical, but almost like a horizontal. Uh, we discussed about fashion luxury. You can discuss about luxury tech. <laughs> you can discuss about fashion tech. Uh, why it's so important? Because you have the, you know, you have artificial intelligence. You can achieve amazing stuff today. Uh, you know, just to give you an example, um, when there's a marathon in a city, let me give you the example of the London marathon. You have Typically, and I think it's the same in New York, 50,000 runners, not participants. You have people who will show up for the outdoor activity, the family, the friends. Now, with artificial intelligence, you can scan the 50,000 runners to check what they're wearing, the color, the material, the latest brands, and you have some 
sportswear companies who invest in the software to understand exactly the latest trend, what could make a difference. So it's an accelerator of productivity. It's an accelerator of revenue growth. Um, so tech is important. The second item, I think it's about sustainability. Um, it's extremely important in terms of supply chain transparency about consumer behavior. Um, we, it's really important that it's carried by the management team, you know. For me, when I speak to the CEO of a company, I want to make sure that the sustainability dimension is front and center of his preoccupations or her preoccupations of her priorities. And I don't want this to be delegated to necessarily to be the sustainability officer. You know, I think it's very transversal in the organization. We really care, if you think about that, about the traceability of materials. We discussed about fashion, apparel, and sustainability. You know, it's almost like a divergence. <laughs> so, and there's an element of complexity because if you look at the supply chain, you know, from the way the yarn is sourced, you know, the labor conditions, you know, you need to be very thorough. You need to have targets. You need to measure the targets. Technology, by the way, can help to measure the targets. If you don't do that, you will fall behind and the consumers will shy away from the brands. Now, when we discuss about sustainability, you know, it's not about moral grandstanding or virtual signaling. It's about what are we doing? And we're aware there's a lot of work streams, complexity. Sometimes it's not the matter of one company doing something is to create coalitions. I would say coalition of the willings. Um, so sustainability technology, definitely value drivers as well. Um, and then, you know, for each company, I would say the value, value creation plan will be bespoke. Um, and that's what gets us excited as a team to understand exactly, okay, what are the levers we need to pull? You know, there are some that are incremental, there are some that you don't want to miss. Um, and it's the understanding of those drivers and the value creation plan that will drive the ownership. Yeah, I think there are some interesting dynamics around around the sustainability in this area um, uh, and around AI as well. Obviously, you you mentioned that uh, as an opportunity, I suppose, but for data gathering, is there any element that it can play in terms of, uh, of value creation, of driving um, revenues for consumer businesses as well, would you say, or um, for, for you as, a, as an investor? It's extremely important because data gathering is key, but for that, you need to have the distribution channels that allow you to collect um, primary data. So that's done when you're direct to consumer, meaning your retail, when you have your own .com, but the CRM allows you to collect data and then to segment it and create you know, a feedback loop about your own consumers. Um, so digital transformation is key and it's not just having 
a data scientist. It's a data scientist who will sit down with management team to tell you there is something really interesting about the consumer behavior that we're seeing today through our own online channel and potentially through the marketplaces. There's something to learn about, you know, the customer returns. <laughs> it's costly. There's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of logistics and cost when you buy something online and you return it. Um, artificial intelligence can help to reduce the product returns. If you're sure a company, you know, the, the size and the fitting is so important. So that's one area. Um, if you think about a retail store, um, you know, the way people, the layout of a store, it's quite scientific. So you can use what people call in the industry, a software dedicated to the planogram. It's how things are organized on the shelves. And if you're a food retailer, what type of product do you want to be sitting next to your product? You know, um, so there's a lot to do. There's still a lot to learn as well um, today. Some companies do it better than others, but I think it can really create an age. Um, and we know we work typically alongside our portfolio support group to accelerate the dig digitalization of our portfolio companies um, because we see it as a major value driver. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Nicola, for sharing your insights. I think we'll, we'll leave it there on that forward-looking note, but it's been a, a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to speak to me. Likewise, Ayat. Thank you again to Nicola for taking the time to speak to me. It was really interesting to get a deep dive into luxury and what it means, um, as well as hearing him talk about discretionary spending, particularly the fact that most of the revenues of some of these luxury brands don't actually come from that kind of top of the pyramid of consumers that you might expect them to come from. Eero, what did you make of the interview? Any key points that you'd like to pick out from what Nicola was saying? Yes, uh, for sure. It was actually very interesting, uh, the point that he made about uh, the difference between a good asset and a good investment. And I think when it comes to the consumer sector, because it's been hit during uh, this period, and what most people that I speak to uh, talk about is that the key differentiation ultimately is having a good asset and, um, and uh, of course a good investment. So that's what sponsors care about. And that's what, um, maybe management that want to, uh, bring a company to the market. They have to take into account all these drivers that he mentioned that matter. And of course, that if you actually have a good asset that, um, can basically when again, the, the, the investor will bring it back to market there will be clear indication of why somebody will want to reinvest in it. Um, this is the key uh, success, uh, successful difference, differentiator. So I think that was really interesting. And I guess the main takeaway is that the market is still open for really good assets. 
Definitely. I really like the way he he distinguished um, between, you know, uh, yeah, as you say, are we really buying? He said, are we really buying something strategic or are we buying, um, you know, just a, a good business? Um, and that exit optionality was obviously really important. Um, I think it also came across just the passion and conviction that he has um, for the sector, which, you know, it sounds a little bit cheesy, but it's actually quite serious because, you know, as he said, you've not just got to convince the advisors involved in the deal, um, you know, you've not just got to convince the vendor that you're the right buyer, but you've obviously got to get it past the IC. And that's potentially not so easy if people are feeling a little bit, uh, you know, off about the about the consumer sector requiring a bit more convincing. Exactly. And obviously, we've reported a lot and we've heard all the discourse about all these processes now taking much longer and the due diligence phase also dragging uh, quite a bit. So it was also really interesting to hear from him. Yeah, definitely. I think we should touch as well now, um, and you, you hinted at this earlier, Eero, um, you know, mentioning a few dual track processes that are potentially coming to market in the consumer sector. Um, we should mention, of course, the uh, Birkenstock IPO, um, which saw uh, sponsor L Catterton, um, you know, list list the business. Um, I'm sure, you know, whether you're aware of it from the Barbie movie or um, as an avid Birkenstock wearer over the years, listeners, um, you will be aware of this IPO as well. Um, just to give a bit of, of background, um, we've been reporting on the process or our, our ECM colleagues have um, over the past you know, weeks and months. Um, we saw um, it list at a $46 per share price, uh, which valued the company at $8.6 billion. We've now seen around a third of the $1.5 billion proceeds. Um, they'll be used by the company to repay its debt, with the rest going to sponsor L. Caston. But there's been quite a bit of reporting on the kind of fluctuation of the shares. And at the time of recording, they're trading at $38.96 a piece. Eero, what do you make of, of all of that? What does that mean or say about consumer IPOs in the current climate? Yes, um, actually, I guess that's a very interesting uh, case uh, to see how this, the, the stocks are trading. It's uh, kind of very interesting to to observe. But I think it goes back to what Nicola was saying about how um, companies these days need to have optionality and that ultimately there is not one good exit option. And although it was a very good sign that the IPO window has kind of reopened and this actually was able to, uh, to get over the line. Uh, of course, it can it can show that uh, this is kind of an uncontrollable uh, space. You cannot control how uh, it will perform uh, following the IPO. So it seems that it's actually something that I guess people will really have in mind um, when they consider IPO as an exit route looking ahead, which actually it will be interesting to see how maybe actually this IPO will affect quite a few names that we're hearing they're considering the are prepping for an IPO or are considering dual track uh, processes. Um, so we have reported about the Italian high-end, uh, shoemaker Golden Goose, which, uh, which is preparing for an IPO. Um, so interesting to see how that will play out. And of course, there is a lot of noise around hotel beds. 
um, which is backed by Sinven, EQT, and uh, the Canadian Pension Plan Investment, which they are lining it up for. They're lining up actually advisors for a potential IPO. Some people talk about a sale. So these are two names that maybe that now that the window is open, they will consider actually taking advantage of it. But going back to what Nicolas said, it 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 is actually an unpredictable space. So there there is a need for a caution, I guess. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, Golden Goose has obviously got that kind of uh, luxury niche element to it. Um, and then hotel beds, um, as you were saying, travel is is a key theme at the moment, has been recovering since um, sort of the, the end, the tail end of the pandemic. So, yeah, it will be very interesting to, to track both of those processes as they continue. Absolutely. Well, I think uh, we'll wrap things up there. But thank you so much, Iro, for taking the time to speak to me. It's been great to have you on the podcast. No, great, great to be back. And thank you so much for the invite. No problem. And thank you again, of course, to Nicolas Chavin from Advent International for for sharing uh, his insights too. And thank you, listener, again, of course, for tuning in. If you like the podcast, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you again in the next episode.